Good morning again, everyone. So glad you're all here. Um, I remember the morning of September 11th, 2001, all too well. I'd only been a freshman in high school for a couple of weeks, and my mom came in to wake me up really early in the morning, much earlier than I normally did. And it was also weird because usually that was my dad's job to wake me up in the morning, not my mom's. But when I came downstairs, the TV was on, and I could see the North Tower of the World Trade Center burning from the first plane crash. And by the time I started my first class at 7.45 that morning, both towers had been hit and had totally collapsed. Those of us who were alive that day were completely shaken, myself included. And at the time, I was not living as a follower of Jesus. I had chosen many months before that I would not be following in my family's footsteps as a follower of Christ. But that day made me begin to reconsider that decision, seeing the great potential for evil on that day. But it was also because of one person's example who stood firm despite what they were seeing which I'm going to tell you about later. But I think we are living in an extremely tumultuous time. Many people are shaken at the events of the last five months, more so because the events that are happening are on a worldwide scale. So as a result, there's been a very negative consequence that has happened. People are living more in fear than ever before and don't know what to do. To many, it may even seem like the world that they knew is completely crumbling around them. They're shaken. The foundations upon their lives are shaken. And so how do we respond as Christians when we feel like this? Personally, what I think we tend to do is that we tend to let our circumstances determine how strongly we stand firm in Christ. You see, we hang too tightly on the latest bit of news, allowing the health of our mindset to fluctuate with each and everything that we see on the news or on social media. Yet it is clear from Scripture that Jesus has said he will come again to address evil in the world and that God is in absolute control of the world and its events, even if it seems like everything is in mass chaos. So instead, for those of us who are followers of Christ, we can stand firm because of God's word, his sovereignty, and the hope of Jesus' return. So this morning, we're going to consider four ways that we can stand firm while we wait for Jesus to return. And so I invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And this is the second message in a three-week series that we're calling The Now and the Not Yet, where we're talking about this tension we live in as Christians, that we're living here on this earth where Jesus said the kingdom has arrived, and yet Jesus and the apostles talked about how the kingdom has yet to arrive. We're living in this weird tension to where we're still waiting for Jesus to return to bring about the full kingdom. And so what we're doing is we're studying our way through the book of 2 Thessalonians in order to do that. And so by way of quick reminder, the book of 2 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Thessalonica. He had spent some time there, but he had to leave abruptly, but the church still flourished after he left. But there were, they had some major questions and misunderstandings about Jesus' return and what that meant for their daily lives. And so they were also going through some significant persecution as a result of their faith in Christ. And so what Paul was seeking to do was to both correct them for their misunderstanding, but also to comfort them in their fear by giving them hope 
as to what was going to come. You see, Paul had taught about the return of Jesus in 1 Thessalonians 5. First, that it would be obvious. Then it would come like a surprise. And that what they were to do was to live in the reality that they would be saved ultimately by Jesus from the wrath of God because of the fact that they had believed in Jesus. But teachers then had come in and twisted what Paul said, which is why he wrote the part of the letter that we're going to study today. But I want us to bear something in mind when we study 2 Thessalonians 2 today, that the Bible was not written directly to us, but indirectly. We receive it. We get to view it as, a, as authority. It's scripture. It has uh, authority over our lives. It reveals God. But the biblical authors had specific people in mind that they were writing to that we have to try and understand what their perspective was on what Paul was saying in order to understand the passages. So what happens, is, especially in this passage today, is Paul leaves out details, assuming that the Thessalonians already knew what he had, was talking about, that they would remember these specific details he had told them when he was with them. And so we're simply not privy to what he said to them. We, and there's going to be a lot of guesswork in some of the things we're going to talk about today. So it is not good to overly speculate on these things. We just don't know and likely won't know. And it's not good to then hold firm to an opinion and be really uh, er almost even arrogant about it to the point where we say we have, you have to believe this particular thing because it's not totally clear. And so what Paul is going to talk about today is his primary issue, why he wrote the letter of 2 Thessalonians. So let's go ahead and read uh, verses 1 through 2 to start this morning. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. So Paul, again, is bringing up the return of Christ and that Christians will then be gathered to him. You see, the word he uses here for coming is this Greek word parousia. And what this word means at its core is presence. Typically, this word was understood as the coming of a king to make a royal visit to a town. So this parousia of Jesus is about his coming to be present as king of the world. And then what he's going to do is he's going to gather his believers. The idea of gathering is a concept of the gathering of Christians for worship. That's where this word comes from. So meaning when Christ returns, we will be gathered as followers of Jesus together to worship him. And so concerning this issue, this is a big event that he had previously talked about with the Thessalonians. He talked about it in his previous letter. He's summarizing what he said in that previous letter, but then a big misunderstanding arose. And so as a result of this, uh, this misunderstanding, Paul sees that the Thessalonians are now, he says, unsettled and alarmed. So he says, don't become easily unsettled or alarmed. And so what he, he means by that is to become unsettled is, a, is like a restless tossing, like a ship being tossed about by stormy waves and winds. And then that alarmed phrase is about continuous anxiety. And when you put the two concepts together, what Paul is doing, according to New Testament scholar Leon Morris, is that Paul warns against both a sudden jolt and a continuing state of remaining upset. So that there would be this event that would cause them to be fearful, and that was the misunderstanding that we're going to talk about in a second, and that not to stay in that continuing state of anxiety. So what had gotten the Thessalonians to this state of feeling this way? 
Well, there are many theories, but what Paul, what, what seems to work best is that someone in the church had a prophetic utterance in the community. And what they said is they twisted what Paul said before, and that they said that Jesus' return has already happened. The day of the Lord has already happened, and you guys, we missed out on it. And so this teaching did not come through Paul whatsoever, even if someone had claimed that it came through on a prophetic utterance, is what Paul is saying here. It's allegedly came from us. This really wasn't us. And so this is why, as Christians today, we have to be really, really cautious about anyone who claims to have a revelation from God and first compare it with what Scripture actually says before we believe what that person says is a revelation. We also need to be really careful about any teacher that has the name Christian attached to them because they're, they're liable to make mistakes and they will hear something maybe in their own minds that will be incorrect. So the question should always be, does this statement match with what Scripture actually says or does it say what this person wants it to say? And so Paul will clarify for them in the next section, we'll look at why Christ has not actually returned. But here and now we've come to the first way we can stand firm while we wait for Jesus' return is that we remain unalarmed by fear and anxiety over rumors not based in Scripture. You see, this is why it is so crucial for you and I to not only read our Bible, but to study it deeply and understand it. When we have greater confidence in our ability to understand the Bible, we will often have greater confidence in living our lives for Jesus. Because his word will become deeply entrenched in us and will become a part of us. And this is something that we all have the ability to do. It is not just for the special or those who are in ministry. Anybody can do this. You just got to find the right books to read. It's really almost that simple. But David says in Psalm 119.11 that I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. There's that entrenching into our heart. And so this verse is often used to defend the practice of scripture memorization which is a very good practice and something we ought to be doing. But I have a new Bible, it's called the, and it's the translation is called the Christian Standard Bible. It's pretty new, and I think it's a really great and balanced translation. It has a lot of good scholars attached to it. This is how they wrote Psalm 119.11. I have treasured your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. You see, it's not just about rote memorization, so you have it in your brain, you can recall it later, but it's about treasuring God's word in your heart, enjoying it, loving it, viewing it as precious to your soul, the very sustenance that you need for your day-to-day -day life. That's what the word of God needs to be. But we also need to have a healthy skepticism toward any Christian preacher, because all of them are humans, including myself, and we are prone to make mistakes. So it means check it for yourself. Look it up for yourself. This is a concept we could call discernment. It's the ability to perceive whether something coincides with scripture or not. And unfortunately, as a pastor over the years, I've seen people not be discerning and accept teachers and preachers into their lives who are twisting scripture to say what they want it to say. But people listen to them because they bring about encouraging thoughts that make people feel good about themselves. So, understand your Bible, have a healthy skepticism, and as a result, don't be alarmed at what others say when it doesn't agree with the Bible because it is likely a tool the enemy is trying to use to discourage and dissuade you from your confidence in Jesus. Let's continue, verse 3. 
Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. So remember, this is not some just code that we're supposed to try and decipher. Paul is not just informing them so that they, they can have a timeline of events at the end times when Jesus will return, but to comfort them because of the misinformation they received that somebody said Jesus's return has already happened. And so Paul has said that the, the coming of the Lord is supposed to be this unexpected event, and there are certain events that then must take place, even though it's supposed to be a surprise. And so they're not supposed to be, the Thessalonians are not supposed to be deceived because these events are supposed to be public and obvious, and they will take place before Jesus comes. And so because these events have not yet happened, according to Paul, then the Thessalonians have no reason to be alarmed or unsettled. And the same goes for us. We have not seen these events that Paul is talking about either. So there's no reason for us to be alarmed in hearing that Jesus has already turned. He has not. He has not returned yet. But the first thing that's supposed to happen is this event called the rebellion. The Greek word here is apostasia, which is usually about a political or military rebellion. It's where we hear the word apostasy, someone who has rejected God and walked away from their faith. Here it is about a rebellion against God. The concept is of a massive, likely worldwide uprising against God. It's as if Satan is mustering his last, biggest, and final effort to defeat God. And honestly, it actually will likely be viewed as right and good by the world that, that those things are happening, but it's going to be an absolute rebellion against God. Because something we need to keep in mind, sin is more than just bad choices that you make or, or a mistake that you did, but an active rebellion against God. It is a statement of our will against God's determining our way to be right. And so then this rebellion will be, like I said, on a worldwide scale. But I want us to make sure we understand something. This rebellion will not include followers of Christ, true followers of Jesus, because they will be able to see right through the rebellion for what it is because of their commitment to Christ. But second thing that's supposed to happen before Jesus returns is the appearance of the man of lawlessness. And he is going to be revealed, as it says in verse 3, much like how Jesus was revealed. And you're going to see this throughout this passage, how there's a great compare contrast that Paul is doing here, that Jesus came and he did these certain things, and that this man of lawlessness is going to come and he's going to do these certain things to try and mimic, but it's not the real thing. But currently, when we see this rebellion in our world right now, it's much more subtle, it's hidden, but it eventually becomes public fare and right out in the open. And next, what Paul does is he gives a reason why this person is then condemned. I want us to understand something that's really clear about the man of lawlessness, first and foremost. Notice how he says, Paul says, there's a man of lawlessness, he's going to be revealed, and then right immediately he goes, he's doomed to destruction. It's as if Paul is just saying, okay, you know what? He's going to have his day. He's going to have his time in the sun where he's going to be in, con in control, but I'm going to win in the end. God's going to win in the end. That's something I want us to make sure we understand. God, Paul doesn't give this guy much airtime because 
God's going to win in the end. But what's happened, why this guy is going to be condemned, why he's doomed to destruction, is because he's essentially going to be in charge of the worldwide rebellion. Look at what he does. He will, this is verse 4, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So basically, he's going to lift himself up above all gods, including our God. He's going to be the God in the world and proclaim himself to be God and call people to follow him. That is the lie that is talked about throughout all of this passage. And just a little side note, I don't think it should be common practice for Christians to try and identify this character with current people living on this earth. You see, many people thought Hitler, Adolf Hitler, was going to be this person. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, believed that the Pope was going to be this person. What matters to us at the very core of it is that it's not helpful to try and identify this character unless they were to make this step to proclaim themselves to be God. Our job simply is to be able to know and identify this person when it does happen, but to simply wait and see, to see what happens. But then in verse 5, Paul reminds them he had talked about this with them before. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? But again, we are not fully privy to everything Paul told them. And so there's much we have to speculate on from here. As such, he tells them that they know what is restraining this rebellion and restraining the man of lawlessness from being revealed. And so we already see, we look at verse 6, it says the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. So it's already happening and it's obvious by the state of our world that there is evil in the world. There's war, rumors of war, strife, fighting, riots, racism, bitterness, abuse, violence, and much, much, much more are all evidence that this world is broken, it's full of sin, and it's in rebellious, rebellion to God. So what's crazy about what Paul is saying here is that something is even restraining this evil right now. So even though there is a lot of evil in the world, it actually could be much worse, which is a crazy thing to think about. So then you're going to ask the question, what is this restraining force that Paul is talking about? And I did a lot of research, and I can tell you confidently that I don't know. And nor should we know, because it is not clear. It is very, like Paul is basically assuming, oh yeah, I already told you who this is, so just go for it. Just go with what I said. There are all kinds of theories, and here's the one that I thought made the most sense. I will give you some sort of an answer here. Don't worry. What makes a lot of sense is actually the rule of law. Because if you think about it, the rule of law restrains evil. It keeps it from going too far. But once the rule of law is taken away, then all manner of evil could be set loose. But again, purely speculation, and I am probably going to be wrong. Okay? And that doesn't matter. So however, what is very clear from what Paul is talking about here is that God is totally in control. He is sovereign over all of these events, and he knows what's coming. So let's now consider our second way we stand firm while we wait for Jesus' return, is that we trust in God's sovereignty and control over the events of human history. You see, the sovereignty of God is not a concept of God predetermining every little thing that will happen in this world, but that it is about his, uh, that he is ultimately the king of this universe that he created, and he is using and will use all events to bring about his purposes in the world. It's about how he exercises his kingship over everything he created, and that he will have 
full victory over evil in the end. And that he is a good king who loves the people that he created. He wants to bring about good in their lives. So he is absolutely in control. So often when we're afraid about what might come or even thinking about this lawless one that's going to bring about this rebellion, we tend towards fear. Even in our current circumstances with the pandemic and all of the uncertainty surrounding it, we can look at this passage and have comfort and know that God knows exactly what's coming. God has not been surprised by anything that has happened in the slightest and won't be surprised by anything to come. He knows how humans will act. He knows how natural disasters and viruses will affect us. And yet his entire plan is working toward the end where he will be glorified and rule and reign this world without the presence of sin forever. So as a result... We must trust him, even when things seem out of control, even when it seems like God's purposes are losing, even when we begin to fear, we trust in his total rule and reign and activity over the world he created and the world that he loves. Let's continue, verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all who will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. So what we're getting here again from Paul is this compare contrast between the two comings, the coming of Jesus and the coming of the lawless one. And again, the lawless one's going to, going to mimic what Jesus did, but it's going to serve the lie as what Paul said. And remember, Paul is trying to reassure the Thessalonians. He's giving them hope that they haven't missed Christ's return and that their persecutors will not ultimately win in the end, but Jesus will. And what we're doing, when we get to verse 8, we're catching Paul kind of mid-sentence here. But it isn't that until that restraining force we talked about earlier is removed that we will see the man of lawlessness revealed, which is another reason why it's kind of pointless to speculate about who it is because we don't even know what the restraining force is and we don't know when that will be removed for sure. So just saying, let's not worry about that too much, about who that person is. But one thing we can be absolutely confident about is what Paul says next. That Jesus will destroy this lawless one simply by showing up and speaking some words. With the breath of his mouth. Follow me on the beauty of this. God created the world simply by speaking things into existence. Let there be light and there was light. God gave man life by breathing into him. You see, God exhibits such power that all he has to do is speak to accomplish what he wants. And this passage right here is actually an allusion to Isaiah 4, Isaiah 11, 4, where God will slay the wicked with the breath of his mouth. So the Lord doesn't even have to pick up a sword to defeat his enemy, but just, again, show up and say a few words. However, Paul gives us a very sober warning in verses 9 through 10 about how people will be deceived into believing the man of lawlessness. First, what he does will be based on Satan's working to, to, to thwart God's redemptive purposes and bring sin and evil into the world. But what he's going to use is he's going to use miracles as a way to validate his message. So there's a few things we need to understand about this. First of all, 
these miracles will be absolutely real and not fake. What Paul is saying here is that these are not going to be fake miracles. They're going to be real. They are actually going to happen. But second, I want you to understand something. Miracles are used in the Bible as a way to validate that a person's message comes from God. And the lawless one is using that same vehicle to do the same thing. But it's why Jesus performed miracles. It's why the apostles performed miracles later on. But third, Jesus predicted that there would be false messiahs and that there would be prophets performing miracles. So we have to understand, miracles aren't the only proof of a message authentically being from God. You see, the difference in these miracles would be the message trying to be validated. You see, the main question we should ask if we come across something like this is, do these miracles point people to Jesus and his gospel, or do they point them away from him? If those miracles point away from Jesus and the truth of the gospel, then what Paul says is these miracles serve the lie. And this is the lie of the lawless one being God and the deception that leads people astray from the saving message of the gospel. And it will deceive those who do not believe in Jesus. Well, why is it? Why is it that it would deceive those who don't believe in Jesus? Because look at what Paul says in verse 10. Because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. The truth of the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is, and his love, the truth of sin, the truth of redemption. You may, they may have heard it at some point, but they chose to reject it. They chose to not love it, and now they are deceived by a lie and choose to love that lie and face destruction as a result. It is only then that God sends, as he says in verse 11, sends a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. You see, he is not forcing them to believe in him or to not believe in him to fulfill his purpose. That's not what he's doing here. He is simply giving them a delusion to which they already believe. He is giving them over to the natural consequence of their choice. So for us as Christians, this should be tragic and heartbreaking and lead us to be vigilant about saving as many people as we possibly can. And that this powerful delusion will result in their condemnation, the judgment that their sin has not been paid for and that they cannot then dwell in the presence of God in his kingdom. But we have to understand that even though this evil is powerful and it's deceptive, our third way that we stand firm while we wait for Jesus to return tells us to hope in Jesus's victory over even the worst of evil when he returns. You see, hope in our culture, I think, is so fleeting and weak. It's about wishing for an uncertain result in the future. But hope in the Bible is all about hope in God himself, in his character to fulfill his promises, and that it is certain, it is absolutely going to happen. You see, Jesus has promised to return. Jesus has promised to defeat and bring justice for all evil done in his world that he created. And because God has fulfilled so many of his promises in the past, we can trust him knowing that he will do it again. And even if we reach the point of witnessing this rebellion and the man of lawlessness and see evil on a scale like never before, we can have the utmost confidence and can stand firm knowing that Jesus' return will usher in the final and decisive victory. You see, Satan may be bringing out his best weapons, but all Jesus will have to do is show up and speak, and the whole thing is over.
What an incredible hope for us to look forward to. And so we do not need to fear whatsoever when we understand that beautiful hope. Let's continue our last section, verses 13 through 17. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He calls you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen, uh, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good word and deed. So Paul closes this chapter again with another moment of thankfulness like he did in chapter 1. For thankfulness for the Thessalonians, but he reminds them of a, couple, of a few other things. First, he reminds them that they are loved by God. You see, Christ evidenced his love by dying on the cross for unworthy sinners like you and I and the Thessalonians. But for those of us who are loved by the Lord, we have nothing to fear like we just talked about from such evil that we might see. But he also reminds them, secondly, that they were chosen to be saved from the beginning. And we can argue and debate to what extent this chosen statement means. But at the very least, we can have confidence knowing that God knew these Thessalonian believers would be saved. And same with you if you have believed in Jesus. That God knew you were going to be saved. And that should be a very comforting thought. He reminds them, thirdly, that they are saved then through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now, i got to clarify something here. Yes, you are saved when you put your faith in Jesus. That is a positional thing. He has, because of your faith in Christ, he has washed you clean. You are holy, blameless, and righteous before him and can stand before him on judgment day. But there is also still indwelling sin in each and every one of us, and the sanctifying work of the Spirit changes you throughout your life in a beautiful process. That's what Paul is talking about here. And so this is an evidence of the legitimacy of a person who claims to be a follower of Jesus. Can you see the fruit of the Spirit being born in your life? Are you constantly being changed? Are you becoming like Jesus more and more over time? Even if it's slow, even if it's somewhat painful, those are some of the evidences that this sanctifying work of the Spirit is actually doing its thing. But this process is only something, look at this, that the Spirit has the power to do. It's the sanctifying work of the Spirit. He is the one who does the work, and we just simply obey what he lays out in front of us. And lastly, he reminds them that they are saved through belief in the truth. Remember, that belief in the gospel of Jesus, that they believe that this is the truth of the word of God, and that they can, are then made righteous and made clean before God. And so then he said, he called you to this, all of these things he just mentioned through our gospel. You see, God's calling is about that opportunity of salvation. When you hear the gospel being preached to you, like Paul did with the Thessalonians. But it has to be answered. You have to respond to it. You can't just simply trust in an, in an, in an idea that Jesus might just save you because you were a good enough person. Because none of us are good enough. But what... But he called them with the purpose, Paul says here, to share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is absolutely striking language here. It's more than just being saved from our sin and going to heaven when we die, but that we get to experience Jesus in all of his glory because we have been washed clean of our sin. 
So it is because of all these realities that Paul talks about that we can stand firm in our faith, as he says in verse 15. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you. You see, we're not frightened by what's happening around us or the opposition or unsettling world events. We stand firm in the gospel and what God wants to accomplish in us through it. And we hold fast to the teachings that have been passed on to us in the Bible, in the scriptures. The word Paul uses here for teachings is paradosis, which can mean traditions. It stands for all Christian teachings, oral or written, that came with the authority of the apostles. And what he's doing here is he's creating bookends with verse 2. This whole argument kind of comes together. that They were unsettled because of this teaching. He says, now, stand firm. Because of everything I've just told you of what God is doing. And so, in other words, if a teaching comes to them through any means that accords with the scriptures, then they must hold fast to it. And if it doesn't, then they need to reject it and not be alarmed by it. But then he again ends this chapter on a prayer. He's asking for Jesus' love proved through his death on the cross to give them eternal encouragement and hope. You see, the gift of the, this gift of the gospel is everlasting and forever grounds the Christian despite whatever they may face and that there is a God who loves them, gave himself up for them, and will hold on to them through whatever they're going through, even if they are surrounded by total evil. And that this should give us hope, like we talked about earlier, that it is eternal and is set in the coming ages and the promises of God. But observe what this should result in. When we look at verse 16 and 17, to encourage and strengthen your hearts in every good deed. You see, when he says hearts, he's talking about the innermost being, something that comes from the deepest part of who we are. But then he says good deed, and it's kind of a weird translation and holds with it a strange connotation as well for Western Christians, because a lot of us are products of the Reformation. And so we tend to not like that word about going and doing good deeds. What Paul means here is to do what is good for others. And it comes from the heart, the deepest part of us, not out of obligation of, or guilt, but from a heart that loves people as Jesus loved us and wants to do good for others like Christ did for us. And truly, again, it's only a work he can do, which leads us to the final way that we can stand firm while we wait for Jesus, is we have faith in God's work in you, through his gospel, even when evil seems unstoppable. As Christians, we know that our message runs contrary to the world, and evil sometimes seems like an impossible enemy to defeat, but we must have an unshakable faith, looking at how God has acted in the past through his gospel to save us, and that he will continue to defeat evil. Not just the evil in the world, but the evil that is inside every single one of our hearts. He will continue this good work in each and every one of us all the way to the end. The Apostle Paul says it in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, in other words, God will continue that sanctifying work in your life until the day that you die or Jesus returns, whichever comes first. God will never stop working on you. And even when the evil in you seems impossible, remember that it is the same God 
who rose Jesus from the dead, who wants to do this work in you. The same God who created the universe with the breath of his mouth and breathed out stars and galaxies. The same God who intimately created you. The same God who became human to live a perfect life and die for us when we least deserved it. This is the same God who will continue his work in you. So don't give up. He will be the one to keep you firm. He will be the one to hold you fast. To finish my story from earlier, my first period class I had on September 11th, the teacher I had that morning simply just turned on the TV and we watched the news for 90 minutes. I remember walking out of class that day fearing, being fearful, dumbstruck at what was happening. But then something absolutely incredible happened. See, the next period I had French class. Now, to be totally honest, I was only taking French because I had taken two years of it in middle school and didn't want to start over with a new language in high school. It's amazing what God uses in your life, just a simple decision like that to make a huge impact on your life. And so at the beginning of that French class that day, my French teacher stood boldly in front of the class and did something that most certainly would get her fired basically any other time but I'm sure they gave her a little bit of a free pass with this one. She stood up front and she said, I'm a Christian. And even though things are chaotic today, I believe fully that God is in control. So I want to take a moment and I want to pray for what's happening today. And she did. And then we went about class as if nothing happened. We just did class. We learned about French the rest of the day. So you see her confidence in God and who he is helped me that day to feel grounded again. And it was later that year that I gave my life to Jesus. And her response to a terrifying situation was certainly part of my journey towards him. And honestly, I took French for four years because of her. I didn't care about French that much. I wanted to just be around this teacher and learn from her for four years. It was great. But this is how our confidence in God's word and the hope of Jesus' return can bring light to a darkened world. And so rather than focusing on the news and how bad things are, take time to study God's word this week and see how God is absolutely sovereign and in total control of all the events of human history. And then take a moment to think about the cross and how that is God's absolute sign of mercy towards humanity. Even though there has been rebellion in this world, that he is offering a chance to know him and to be saved from your sin, to be saved from this coming destruction, to escape the delusion. So if you have not believed in Jesus, will you consider taking up faith in him today? And lastly, remember that it is God who works in you to change you and transform you to be more like his son. And he will do this because he loves you. So trust in him to hold you fast. So, and let's remember the main thing today is that we can stand firm because of God's word, his sovereignty, and the hope of Jesus' return. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that we can stand firm because of so many things that you have done. Jesus, I pray that we would trust in you completely, that you are the one that holds us fast, no matter what happens. Jesus, let us not be fearful of what might be happening, and God, not be unsettled by world events, but know that you are sovereign, you are in control, and we can trust you because you are good and you love us. And God, that ultimately, you're going to win in the end. So help us to trust all of those things. And we pray this in your name. Amen.